Hello, friends, and welcome to Robcast 141. Uh, this one's called The Thing in the Air, Part 3. And uh, this episode, the name of the episode is The, the Importance of the Counter-Narrative, or the, the Power of the Counter-Narrative. Or maybe I should call it the, the absolute centrality of the counter-narrative. So, this episode has something to do with the idea of a counter-narrative. But by the end of the episode, I'll know what to call the episode. How about that? And uh, so we, we're going to have to talk about the Dallas Cowboys. We're going to talk about the Roman Empire. We're going to talk about the evolution of Homo sapiens. We're going to talk about uh, the first line of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to talk about pipelines. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're going to, I got all kinds of things I want to talk about. Um, and, but by the way, first off, I want to say a shout out to everybody at Zen Parenting. Did you know this was such a thing, Zen Parenting? I got this invitation to go speak at this Zen Parenting event, and it was fantastic. It was a couple days ago. So uh, to, to Todd, Kathy, to all of you who at Zen Parenting, big shout out. Man, I felt right at home. So much love. And um, Tuesday night, February 28th, um, I'm doing a show at Largo. I'm going to be talking about third-way nonviolence and uh, the history of resistance movements and what it actually means to turn the other cheek. And uh, so if you're in the Los Angeles area, it's always more fun when you're there. So uh, that's a couple things <laughs> going on. And uh, oh yeah, so we should talk about the thing in the air and the absolute power, importance, and central... Cent absolute centrality of the counter narrative. And uh, I have some notes. Can you hear that? Pages. I basically, by the way, probably three months ago, I decided to try to use my computer as little as possible. So anything that I could write in some other medium, I would, I would write in that, which is pen and paper, because I love pen and paper. Um, here is the pen and the cap of the pen. And uh, so I have been trying to work as much as possible, except for obviously like email and keynote and stuff. I've tried to work mostly in pen and paper. So um, these notes for this episode are all written in my uh, chicken scratch. And uh, so I want to talk about counter-narrative. I want to introduce you if this is a new idea, and I want to talk about why the counter-narrative is so incredibly necessary and vital now more than ever. And I specifically want to talk to those of you who are watching the news and watching our new president in action, and you're like, this is bad. Like, what are we going to, this is really bad. Like, what are we going to do? Where is this headed? Like, how do we deal with what's happening from the White House. And I want to offer you a way of thinking historically. First off, I want to show you how this is not new, but I want to show you perhaps a new way to think about what you are seeing in America and around the world. And as always, I want to bring good news. Like I, I, I want to show you perhaps a new way to think about this so that we can act in new ways so that we will not have that feeling of powerlessness and passivity that always leads to despair. So in order to do that, first, uh, I want to talk about the Dallas Cowboys. Then we'll talk about the evolution of Homo sapiens, 
and then we'll talk about the spread of the Roman Empire. Then we'll talk about the first line of the gospel account of Mark. Then we'll talk about now. And then there are three very practical things I want to give you as uh, we move and live in this world that we call home. So there we go. We even have an outline. Now, uh, probably six, seven, probably seven weeks ago, early January, uh, Kristen and I went to Dallas, Texas for an NFL football game. Are you familiar with these? And we, it was a playoff game. And in the National Football League, when you get into January is playoffs and the Super Bowl is early February. So when you get into early to mid-January, there are less and less teams that are essentially still alive. And uh, so we went to see the Dallas Cowboys play the Green Bay Packers. And at that point, there would have been eight teams still standing. And at the end of that weekend, there were only four teams. Then the following weekend, the four teams played. And then eventually the Patriots and the uh, Falcons went to the Super Bowl. And um, so I had heard that the Dallas Cowboys stadium was something to behold. It was built uh, a couple of years ago um, by the owner and general manager. It had been sort of the leader, uh, a guy named Jerry Jones, had built this massive stadium slash temple. And um, I had heard that it seated 103,000 people. And I was like, I, I think it'd be so fascinating to see a game there. So um, Kristen and I go, and um, so we go to Texas. We go to Dallas, Texas. Are you familiar with Texas? And I always enjoy traveling internationally. <laughs> oh, that joke is so dumb, and it's so old, and it just is the gift that keeps on giving. So um, we go to Texas, which is its own lovely experience. And we get near the stadium, and there's more and more cars and more and more people in Cowboys jerseys and Packers jerseys. And... Then we get in the stadium, and it's it is so big, and it is it is like you've landed on planet football, and the there's like a uniform which is a cowboy's jersey, jeans, and cowboy boots. It really is the thing that's beautiful about Texas is Texas is totally Texas, and it's not hiding its Texasness. You know what I mean? It's just through and through. Te Texas is like the brochure for Texas. You know what I mean? It does not disappoint, and uh, so. It's like from the moment you enter the building, you know that you are in the Dallas Cowboys house. And the star, the blue star with the silver is everywhere. And you can buy all of this uh, Cowboys memorabilia. And the cups have Cowboys logos on them. You You are not fuzzy on where you are on planet Earth. You are in the center of Dallas Cowboys land. Above the field is a screen that is, uh, someone told me it's the biggest screen any, anywhere, um, is a massive, massive screen. Actually, during the game, it's you have to be careful because you, what they do as soon as the play starts is they show the play on this massive screen above the field. And if you're not careful, you'll end up watching the play on the screen when just below the screen, the play is actually happening in real life. It's like you travel thousands of miles to watch it on TV if you're not careful. And uh, they do like these pyrotechnics and they're like, there are all these cheers for the Cowboys. And then they do this really interesting thing. They have former players who have pre-recorded these 
video clips where they like get the crowd fired up and they say things like, this is our year. We have the men. We have the men to finish this fight. All we need is you. And if you join with us, we can finish this fight together. So right away that you pick up, and then there's this phrase, our boys, so that the, the players are referred to as our boys. So there's like this tribal narrative of this is who we are. These are our boys. We are needed. We, the fan, the, the Cowboys fans are needed to finish. There's a job we're going to do. We're gonna, it's a fight. It's a battle. There's us and there's our adversary. Um, we have the men and the men are going to finish the job. They're going to defeat these other men who have come into our house who need to be shown that we will be the victors and defend our honor in our house and finish this fight. And when the former players' videos come on the screen, the place goes berserk. And so there is... Oh, and then there are... They, they do a huge intro of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders who come on and these women cheer for the men. And what's fascinating is <laughs> the best part to me is they introduce them. Every time they come on the field, they introduce them as America's sweethearts. And as soon as they announced them as America's sweethearts, my first thought was, yes, if America's sport is pole dancing, <laughs> it's all like there's like a... <laughs> Please tell me you enjoyed that. It's what's called a unifying narrative. From the moment you enter the building, the architecture, the visuals, the graphic design, what is said, the videos, everything in this place is telling you a particular story. And here's the thing. Here's the thing to understand. How do you get 100? Well, let's say there's some Packers fans. How many Packers fans? Let's say there was 13,000 Packers fans. Let's say there were eight, whatever. So let's say out of the 103,000, 90,000 are Cowboys fans, 95,000. I have no idea. I'm just guessing. Guaranteed somebody listening has the actual data on this. Uh, How do you, at a deep human level, how do you get... 95,000 people gathered and aligned around a common objective. What you do is you tell a unifying narrative. Sometimes called an animating myth. Not myth like something that's not true, but myth like a story that is true in more poetic, symbolic terms. What you do, if you want to gather 90,000 plus people, is you tell a story And you tell a clear story that everybody can gather around. And so what's fascinating when you go to a Dallas Cowboys game, what's fascinating about it linguistically, rhetorically, anthropologically, spiritually, is from the moment you enter, you are being told a story. And if you buy the story, it's incredibly powerful because then you are united with all the other people who are also united around this unifying narrative. We have the men. These are our boys. This is our year. 
we have what it takes to finish this fight, but we need you to gather with us in order to complete the job. And everybody, we literally, we have cheerleaders who are cheering on these men so that they can do it. And we need you to get behind this men so that they can finish this fight. Now, here's why this is fascinating. When there was a moment partway through the game when the Cowboys threw the ball and the Packers intercepted it. And prior to that, after every play, there is a replay so that you can, so that the Cowboys fans could cheer when their team did something good. Then they show a replay on the screen. Everybody watches the replay and then you cheer a second time for what they just did that was so good. There was a moment when the Packers intercepted a Cowboys pass and they didn't replay that. What they replayed was an earlier pass that had been caught. And then later in the game, there was a defensive foul that allowed one of the Dallas players to intercept a Packers pass. And on the replay, they framed the replay as the Cowboys player catching the Green Bay pass and just off the screen was the foul, the penalty, which they didn't show. So the crowd only saw the Dallas player catching the Green Bay pass. And it looked like there you couldn't see the foul. All it looked like was that they had been unjustly had an interception taken away. So what was fascinating is the video screen didn't replay every play. It selectively replayed plays that helped, are you ready with me, bolster the unifying narrative. So when they introduced the two teams, they didn't say uh, it was your Dallas Cowboys. Everything was the power strength. They never, ever said, and we'd like to welcome the Green Bay Packers, who may win this game because they're not bad and they've won a number of games in a row and they're sort of surging. They're kind of on a roll. This thing could go either way. You're not going to get anything like that. What you're going to get is this is our moment. This is our time. This is our... Now, it's just pro sports and all you Dallas Cowboys fans, you have a, you had a great team and you're going to have a great team for like the next, looks like 20 years with Ezekiel Elliott and Dak Prescott and Des Bryant as long as he keeps his cool. You know what I'm saying? Like you're going to be great for a while. Your f- team is great to watch. So Dallas Cowboys fans, please tell me you're enjoying this. But what's fa- and it's just sports, but obviously sports is metaphor and sports teaches us about all sorts of things. And the reason why I tell you this really long story is how do you unify a large number of people? The way that you do it is you tell a unifying narrative and you keep telling the story and you tell the story again. And in some situations, when people are struggling and when they're doubting and when their uh, confidence is rattled, what do you do? You tell the story again. You tell it louder. You tell it with more confidence. You get former heroes to tell everybody the story. You get larger video screens to tell the story. You crank up the music to adrenalize the place, to electrify it. You shoot fireworks off in a building to do what? 
to keep telling the story. Now, the reason why I tell you about the Dallas Cowboys versus the, by the way, the energy, the decibel level for three and a half hours, you just kept hearing the story. And it's very, very powerful and loud until the last play of the game when the Packers won. And then it got really quiet and everybody left. And then they'll return in September for the beginning of a new season and they'll tell the story again. Now, the reason why I tell you this is because in the evolution of humanity, Homo Neanderthal and Homo sapien were evolving together. We are Homo sapiens. So the question is, how did Homo sapiens survive? And that's who, who we are. And how come we don't have Neanderthal friends? How come none of your neighbors are Neanderthals? How come, some of you may have dated Neanderthals, but how come Homo sapiens evolved and survived and adapted and kept going, and how come no Neanderthals are left? Well, if you look at what happened earlier in human history, human groupings were at largest around 100 people because 100 Homo Neanderthals could have enough social connection to be bonded and actually accomplish some things together because there, was a, there were enough actual direct relationships that a group of 100 could stay coherent and together. But Homo sapiens, different than Homo neanderthals, developed something new in the evolution of human beings. Homo sapiens developed the ability to tell a story, to tell an, uh, like an, you could call it an animating myth or a unifying narrative. By the way, there's all sorts of, obviously, scholarship and writing on this. A book that I would highly recommend if you find this interesting is Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens. Yuval, Y-U-V-A-L, Yuval. His last name is Harari. It's an absolutely brilliant scholar, H-A-R-A-R-I. And Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens, is essentially about the evolution of humanity, but he does a whole section on this moment when sapiens pulled ahead of Neanderthals. And it's the best explanation I've seen of what I'm talking about here, which is Homo sapiens developed the ability to tell a story. And when they were able to tell a story, then not just 100 people, which was big as Neanderthal could get, but 150, 200, 500 people could rally around a story. A thousand people could rally around a story. 10,000 people could rally and get behind and could be unified by a story. So it was actually a leap in human cognition and consciousness, the ability to tell a unifying narrative, which has allowed Homo sapiens to just completely dominate Neanderthals to the point where Neanderthals sort of faded away and Homo sapiens became us. So when people say, how did of all these different strands this one strand, us, sort of win, essentially, the answer is, the biological scientific answer is story. Because if you can only get 100 people rallied around something, and those folks over there can rally 5,000 people around an idea, they're going to crush you. So, 
The reason why I tell you about the Cowboys and the reason why I tell you about Sapiens, as we as human beings, story, and people say, oh, we're really into story and story is so important. There are evolutionary, biological, powerful explanations why story continues to be so central to what it means to be human. Literally, our survival and evolution all the way to our enjoyment of professional sports. Now, let's begin to steer this towards the thing that is in the air with our new president and what's happening in our country and the way that that is reverberating around the world. To do that, let's go back 2,000 years. And you know I love talking about the Roman Empire, but 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire had conquered a big chunk of the known world from England to India. The Roman Empire was a global military superpower like the world had never seen. Now, how do you build an empire and conquer the world? You do that. You know where I'm going with this, right, my friends? Raise your glass is so good. How do you do this? You do it by telling a unifying narrative. You do this by telling some sort of story. And the Roman emperors, called Caesars, were masters of telling stories that unified the masses. So at the heart of the Roman Empire was a controlling narrative, an animating myth, a story about how the Caesar was born of the divine. So Julius Caesar, the first Caesar, who invented a haircut and a salad, after that he was like, let's do an empire while we're on a roll. <laughs> I love telling that joke. Uh, Julius Caesar, there was some belief that he had uh, some sort of divine birth. By the way, in the first century, if you were going to tell a story about a powerful leader, you would always tell about a unique birth, a birth somehow related to the gods, some sort of virgin birth. That was just how you would tell a story, that everybody understood that if somebody was truly a great leader sent from the gods to do something new in the world, they would, of course, have an extraordinary birth story. So the idea of taking the details of those birth stories or some sort of virgin birth or a birth of the gods, the idea of taking that literally was never what people did because the, it was about the poetic power of it. So the Roman Empire expanded because the Caesars were masterful at telling stories. And the story that they told was that Caesar has divine origins. Now, Julius Caesar, they believed, had divine origins, and so Julius Caesar's son was called a son of God. That began with Caesar uh, Augustus, also called Octavian, and then went all the way through to, uh, you had Hadrian, you had Tiberius, you had numerous Caesars from there, but the phrase son of God was a political, essentially, a political religious term that meant a son of God was a powerful ruler who essentially had divine origins of some sort and ruled with the power and favor of the gods. So it was this figurative, like what you say, metaphorical term for somebody who had some, what we would might say, like they had some extra mojo, they had some extra juju. So the Caesar who believed that he was a son of God, and there was a specific term that the Caesar gave himself for what he was doing. The Caesar believed he was, and the Greek word was soter, S-O-T-E-R. It gets translated like savior, 
gets translated like Messiah. He believed that he was a savior. There was even Roman military propaganda that the Caesar was sent to earth to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. Now, if you were to take a Roman coin from the first century, there was an inscription on the coin. And the inscription was, peace through victory. So the controlling narrative that the Caesar told was, I am here to bring peace to the earth. And the way that I bring peace is through victory. Now, what kind of victory? Military victory. So the Roman army, the largest army the world had ever seen, went around the world crushing people. And when they crushed a place, if anybody resisted them, then they crucified you. So it was peace through victory, but it depends on which end of the sword you were on. Yes, it was peace. It was quiet. There wasn't any more conflict. Basically, because you killed everybody who didn't go along with you. Are you with me? Do you see why the nature of a unifying narrative is so important? If anybody challenged the dominant unifying narrative, they were crushed and the Romans had uh, essentially tweaked this thing called an uh, execution stake, also called a cross, as a way of publicly making sure everybody knew if you resist the Roman Empire, which means if you don't buy in to the unifying narrative that we are telling, then we will crush you. There's all sorts of interesting stories about and evidence. Uh, the city of Magdala, I think they believe somewhere between two and 3,000 Jewish people were crucified at once because of their resistance to the Romans. Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' first disciples, was from Magdala. So in the first century, it was a common occurrence to see a whole series of execution stakes and to see people hanging on them, being executed as enemies of the state because they resisted the dominant unifying narrative, the animating myth of the empire. Empires always need an animating story. Somebody somewhere is telling a story. That's how you conquer the world. Now, whenever the Caesar would conquer a new area, a new territory, and make that another realm of the empire, and so the empire would expand, he would send out um, an announcement. He would send out what was called officially good news. And the good news was the announcement that we have conquered and subjugated another group of people. The actual Greek word for this military announcement of victory and conquest, the Greek word was euangelion, good news. Euangelion transliterates into English evangelical. Come on. Come on, my friend. Stay with me because this is about to get really interesting. The word evangelical was a Roman military propaganda term. The phrase good news, which is where evangelical, how it gets translated. And the good news was, hey, we destroyed somebody else. Hey, we killed a bunch of people and now we have peace because everybody who didn't agree with our story is dead. That was the story. And if you had a different story to tell, 
you got killed because an empire does not expand by being open and inclusive of lots of different stories. The way that you build an empire is you tell a story and you tell it over and over and over again. And if there are any flaws in that story, whatever you do, you don't show those replays on the big screen. <laughs> now, my friends, in light of this, it is in that time and in that place that the gospels began to circulate the Jesus message begins to spread. And let me just read you. And if you're not religious or you haven't read the Bible, hang out with me here. Just listen to this from a human political perspective. Mark, the gospel of Mark was the first gospel that told the life of Jesus. And chapter one, verse one, here's how John begins his gospel. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. Do you realize what that is? How does John begin his gospel telling the Jesus story? He tells the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. Do you know what that is? Well, like 5,000 thoughts in my head right now. But let me just do a couple. First, you know what that is? That's a counter narrative. You realize what Mark is doing is Mark right under the nose of the Roman Empire is telling a different story. It's a counter narrative. It is a subversive story that challenges the dominant story of the empire. Actually, a lot of people have shown how the coronation ceremony of a, of a Caesar, the Gospel of Mark is actually arranged, it's political satire, the whole gospel is arranged according to follow the steps of a coronation of a Caesar. So a Caesar has a crown placed on his head and Jesus has a crown of thorns placed on his head. He's marched through the streets, not triumphantly, but carrying an execution stake as an enemy of the state, as an insurgent. That's probably the better term. So uh, this whole gospel is a counter narrative, which is obviously why Jesus is killed um, so the phrase son of God, I've had people say to me, like, do you believe Jesus was the literal son of God? Well, what's funny to me about that phrase is, is that it was a figurative term. It was a Roman military propaganda term. It was a figurative term for somebody who, who led with divine power. So, it, so when someone says, well, you need to take it literally, you mean take a figure literally, take a metaphor literally? It's completely, it actually is a way to miss when somebody does that, when you hear somebody do that, like, well, you know, do you literally believe he's the son of God? That's actually robbing the phrase of its power. The person thinks that they're making it, they're actually degrading because the reason why that phrase was so powerful is these first Jesus followers were essentially calling out the violence and oppression of the empire, which is why the whole story is, instead of crushing enemies, he says, love your enemies. Instead of marginalizing the poor, he moves towards the poor. Instead of coercive military violence, it's a story of sacrificial love. Better to be executed as an enemy of the state with your heart full of love, forgiving your enemies, than executing people and calling it peace. Come on! Yes! Yes! Oh, by the way, one more thing. And I'm specifically speaking to all of you who say things in your churches like, 
well, we just don't get political. Uh, what? What? How do you read these Jesus stories and not talk about how they're exploding with political truth? The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, could not be a more political opening to a story that they're telling. Like that is, you know what that is? That is a lack of courage. And I literally, I've heard of people who, who are like, oh yeah, in, in our church, we don't even, the, we have, there's been no mention of the election of what's happening in our country. Are you, are you kidding me? Seriously, that uh, unbelievable. Anyway, we got to keep going, correct? So uh, I could go all day on that, by the way. So here's why I think this is so fascinating. And this is why it's so unbelievably important right now. When you see our new president silencing certain news outlets, forbidding them from access, when you see, oh, classic example, the inaugural crowds were way less than they were for President Obama, and the Trump administration released a photo saying that the, Trump, the crowds were huge. The photo that they released to make their point that the inauguration crowds were the biggest ever were actually from the next day, which is when millions of women marched. So the administration, to make their point and to counter the actual data that it was one of the least attended inaugurations, released a photo showing Washington, D.C. full of people, um, but those crowds weren't there. It was the day later. They were there to protest. They were women peacefully marching and standing up for the dignity, honor, and rights of women. Now, the reason why I bring that up, my friends, is what you are seeing is a revival of ancient, essentially propaganda, where you only show the replays on the screen that bolster your animating, controlling, unifying narrative. So when you see some of this and you're like, wait, that isn't the truth. Th this is just a lie. Like that's just a story that's being told that has no relation. They just totally brushed over that. They just, uh, they said that the judge made a bad decision about the travel ban when all the judge was doing was interpreting what the law actually said. What you are seeing is this has been around for thousands of years. This is how people accumulate maintain power and oppress others as you keep telling a story. And when somebody else says, yeah, but that story isn't true, or that story is oppressive, or that story leaves these people out, you just keep telling the story. And eventually, obviously in a democracy, then you have to start silencing the press. Because in its most noble, courageous form, the power of the press is to keep holding those in power accountable for the decisions they make and what they do with their power. And I would argue that what you are seeing right now are some ancient, ancient, ancient practices of just keep telling the unifying narrative, even if it's not true, even if you literally have to use other aerial photographs to try and make your point. Now, how are we doing so far? Because I'm almost to the intro. <laughs> Okay, three things, three very practical things that I want to give you to help you think about this as we go forward. First, 
Lots of people right now are angry. Totally get it. You should be. There's lots of rage, lots of protests. Totally get it. Lots of people calling their congressmen uh, and congresswomen. Got it. Awesome. Keep doing it. But here's the problem. You can be angry. You can be like furious with the White House. You can say this is not my president. You can protest. You can make clever signs. You can go on social media and got it, got it, got it, got it. But if you don't have a coherent counter narrative, you run the risk of lots of smoke but no fire. You're just making noise. Does that make sense? Do you see, do you see how do you subvert a dominant regime? You tell a counter narrative that is so compelling, it wins people over and the new narrative pushes out the dominant oppressive narrative. So what you see, like at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, is you see the Gospel writers are telling a counter narrative. So essentially what they're doing to the Roman world is they are saying, because there was a phrase, Caesar is Lord. So when these, the first Jesus followers said Jesus is Lord, that was a counter narrative. They were essentially saying to the Roman Empire, Caesar crushes his enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. Which one is the better story? Is the world made better through coercive military violence in which you crucify those who don't agree with you? Or is the world made better through sacrificial love that humbly gives itself for the well-being of others? So which story do you think is better? Which story are you more drawn into? Which story has more poetic power to actually transform your life? And so what you see right now is lots of people are justifiably angry, panicked, uh, paranoid, um, marching, awesome, awesome, totally get it. The, the protesting, love it, yes, got it. Rallying, realizing we gotta get ready for the next election, totally get it. But without a coherent counter narrative, you aren't able to actually make real change. So uh, secondly then, the thing to do is to teach yourself. It's like literally to train yourself to ask this question with everything that you encounter. When you read the news, ask yourself this question, what's the story here? What's the story here? If you begin to see, some people say essentially that history is the, a war of myths or a war of stories. Um, it's this story versus that story. Not in a trivial sort of, hey, that's a great story, but in a, no. Stories are what literally biologically, evolutionarily, they shape us, they form us, they bond us into coherent groups that actually do things. Sometimes, um, sometimes the story is entitlement. The story that person is telling is, I'm entitled to this and it's been taken from me, so I'm gonna take it back. You'll hear lots of stories that are about taking things back. Take, this, take back this country, take back this government, take back this whatever, take back this faith, take back this church, take back this school, take back this business. Sometimes the, sometimes the story, and it's like you read stories at a spiritual level. What is, what is this story doing spiritually? Sometimes the story is something that is ours was taken from us and we're entitled to it. Sometimes the story is victim. We're a victim here. Something was done to us. Sometimes the story is we're the winners and they're the losers. So just trust me, stick with me because I'm a winner. 
Sometimes the story is injustice. Sometimes the story is this as an injustice, and it needs to be heard and addressed. Sometimes the story is about right and wrong. We're right, they're wrong. And the story is that. Sometimes the story is fear. I will protect you from whatever you're most fearful of, generally them, whoever's not like you. Sometimes the story is gratitude. Can you believe we get to do this? Ugh. It's just, I mean, are we, are we not so blessed? So stories, stories have like, they're like undergirded by spiritual energies. So like when you hear a story, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the son of God, that is like a, it's a dangerous story. It's like a subversive story because it's using intentionally Roman military propaganda in order to subvert it. It's got this hope within it, but it's a hope that's aware that we all might die. So it's like cost. It's not a cheap, positive thinking. It's a cost. And it's a story ultimately about somebody who's crucified and the invitation then to his followers is to live in such a way that there's always a cost, by the way. Anybody who tells you a story that doesn't involve some cost is not telling you the whole story. Anything good is going to involve cost. It's the Eucharist rhythm, body broken and blood poured out for the healing of the world. Anybody telling you a story in which everything good happens easy is not telling you a story that's actually in a sustained sort of way going to transform you, the people around you, the people who need it the most, or the world we live in. What's the story here? What's the story? Here's an example. Let me just take an example. When President Trump, which still seems weird to say, to be honest with you, when he sits down and signs an executive order to approve of a pipeline, that people have been actively protesting. When a group of white men gather to use their power to allow people to stick long tubes into the earth to take resources to be used for whatever, yes, this, that's a story. That's an ancient story about the powerful taking what they need to do whatever they want. Um, and literally when people say this is sacred land, could you, could you not stick your pipes in sacred land? And other people are like, but there's stuff there that we need to do whatever we need to do. That's essentially a story that says nothing is sacred. The earth is to be exploited and used for whatever we decide in our empire building. Yeah, there's like a, that's a story, that's a story. And so especially when you're angry, especially when you see something, and you think that is so wrong and offensive to women, to transgender kids, to our Muslim friends, to our, I mean, go still go on the list. Ask yourself in your anger or frustration, stop and say, wait, what's the story here? What's the story here? What's the story here? Because sustained transformation will only occur when we move through our anger and frustration to shaping counter narratives that are so compelling, they might actually win the day. So you can force people into something, you can force them into capitulation, you can force them in, but the really interesting thing happens when there's an element of, there's an element of compelling, of wooing, of seduction, when you have heard a story that is so good that it like pulls you up in it. 
Yeah, what's the story here? Ask yourself, next time you see something, you think that is completely insane. Wait, what's the story here? And then right on the heels of that, the question is, and what's the counter narrative? What's the counter narrative? Because the better you can get at naming, the, not just being angry with how dumb, how exclusive, how dominating, how white male that is, whatever language you come to mind about what's wrong with it, as soon as you can move to being able to name the counter narrative, what is the beautiful vision of the future? Think about Martin Luther King. Was he just like, segregation is dumb? No. When you think about like the I have a dream, that is a counter narrative. I have a vision for kids of every skin color being together in a new kind of society. Oh, classic example. He could have just been like, I'm against that, I'm against that, I'm against that. But the power of that is the articulation of a better future. And then one more thing. And this one, one of the ways that you evaluate a unifying narrative is you judge it by its capacity for self-critique. You judge it by its openness to acknowledging its flaws. So actually one, one of the reasons why I'm more compelled with the scriptures than ever is history is generally told by people who triumphed in the name of their gods. And when they recount history, history is usually told by winners because everybody else is dead. And so history is generally told by people who recount how with the strength of the gods they crushed their enemies. Which, by the way, when you see Donald Trump endlessly telling about all the things that he's done and things he's put buildings he's put his name on. This is a very, very, very ancient thing to, to tell a glossed over version of history in which you leave out the bankruptcies and you leave out the not paying any taxes and you just tell all the victories in the name of your gods, which happened to be you. <laughs> um, the way the, the, the power of the scriptures is how it has no problem critiquing these storytellers critique the heroes. Moses is temperamental. David is violent. Jesus' disciples don't get it again and again and again. Propaganda, that's also how cults get started. Cults have no capacity for self-critique. Military propaganda, which is usually used in empire building, doesn't generally have any capacity for self-critique. It only knows how to just keep telling the same story over and over and over again. And the last thing it does on the replay screen is show plays where the other team knew what was happening and intercepted the pass. It's true for us personally. It's true for groups. It's true for institutions. It's true for businesses. It's true for religious communities. It's true across the board. Systems are only as healthy as their capacity for self-critique. Uh, to me, there's obviously a, a really, really convicting personal dimension. Uh, each of us, our health and strength and the stories that we tell ourselves are only as strong as we're able to listen to the critique. Uh, it's the importance of having friends who will tell you the truth long before your critics will. Um, 
It's true right now, especially with our government. The power of the story that is being told is how well it deals with actual facts and truth about how it isn't optimal for everybody. The way that you judge a unified narrative, one of the key ways is can it handle critique? And if it can't, then it has to start banishing people from the White House press press briefing. It will only do interviews with a couple of people who it knows ahead of time will not ask difficult questions. That's that's all a, a deep ancient sign that this is not a narrative that will be able to take us anywhere new and fresh. And that, my friends, is one of the things that's in the air. The beauty, of course, in all of this is that it's waking everybody up. And historically, what we have learned is you can be as angry, you can be as filled with rage, you can protest, but the way that it works is you muster all of your resources for imagination and creativity and courage, and then you craft a counter-narrative, and you tell that story, and you tell that story again and again. And when someone points out its flaws, you listen, and then you tweak that story, and you acknowledge the ways in which the story falls short. And then, now you have a story that could actually change the world. Grace and peace, my friends, now more than ever.